Welcome to those of you who came in since the start of the service and to those of you who have joined us online. I'm so glad that you could be here. This week we are continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. In fact, this is going to be our second last message in this series. Our second last message from this book forever. Okay, maybe not forever. But for, for this series, we are on our second last week, the penultimate, as we say. Next week, we'll be focusing on Palm Sunday, and we won't be doing uh, 1 Corinthians for that, but we'll be back to wrap up this series on Easter. This week, we've been in sort of a mini-series talking about spiritual gifts, right? We started two weeks ago with talking about the, the gifts and what they were for and how they're for the use in the church and for the edification of the body. Last week, Donna shared with us about how love is the frame that all of the gifts exist within, that that is the, the framework that we do all of our working within. And so this week is part three. Let's keep all of that in mind as we move today into chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. But first, let's have a word of prayer. God, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these words that still matter to us today, God. That your word is relevant, that it is alive, that it is active, that it is useful for us today, God. That this isn't just some relic that we're examining, but that, Lord, it is part of our lives for today. We thank you that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. Pray, Lord, that you would speak through me today to speak the words that our hearts need to hear to be closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles, because I'm sure you all brought one, or at least you have one on your phone. Pull your phone out, because I don't think we have the words up on the screen this week. We had a technical glitch, and you know, it happens sometimes. So pull your phone out. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I like to read from the New International Version, the NIV. So if you can find your own copy, you're welcome to read in whatever translation you prefer but it's sometimes easier to follow along if we all read together. So I'm going to be reading here, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening encouraging and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp or the piano or the guitar, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. 
Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to that speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquires, and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, and in, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Whitney, I'm getting a lot of reverb back here. Can we do anything about that? 
So, in traditional preacher form, I have got three things from this passage that I'd like to talk to you about today. And first, let's address the elephant in the room. There was one part of that passage where you all went, Whoa! I did. I don't know if you could tell, I braced myself before I read that part. I'm sitting here going, somebody's going to clip this and put this on YouTube, and at least I'll be able to say I'm reading the Bible. This is the issue of should women be silent in church? And I have to point out that this chapter is 40 verses long. And that passage is two. It is 5% of this chapter. It's not nothing, but it's definitely not the focus. And yet, it is the only thing that we want to hear addressed right now. There has been a lot of ink spilled over these two verses, and I don't claim to have the answer, but I can tell you the short version of how I've understood it. The full witness of Scripture, everything that the Bible has to say on it, everything that we see going on, does not suggest that women are to be at all times and in all places silent in gatherings. In the scriptures, we have women who are prophets. We have women who are apostles. We have women who are leading worship. One of the judges of Israel was a woman. In fact, even within this very letter, in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 4, Paul talks about women prophesying in the same section where he's dealing with head coverings, which is another lovely controversial area. But to prophesy, like that is a public event. So these women, who were act these were women who were actively publicly speaking in church, and Paul doesn't condemn them for doing that. In fact, he's offering advice about how it should be done properly. There is a line of scholarly thought that what Paul was talking about here was something more akin to asking questions in the middle of a sermon. Like, imagine if one of you right now blurted out something like, who's Paul? Thank you. It's a good question, and it's an important one. But, like, that is not what we're talking about right now, right? Who is Paul is a foundational question that we all have gained an understanding of over the course of many years of study and reading our Bibles and of being in church. I mean, that's probably not a great example because you could answer it fairly quickly, but maybe this is a better example. Earlier in this service, we did communion. There's a lot of mystery and doctrine around what is communion and why do we do it and what does it mean? Is it the, the body and the blood of Christ in a literal sense? What about a symbolic sense? Does the act of taking communion do something or is it just a symbol? Those are all big, important questions and I invite and encourage you to wrestle with them, but not right now. During a communion service is not the time to be asking those questions, and it's especially not the time to be asking those questions out loud of the pastor, right? Like, can you imagine if I was up here opening it and you went, is that really the body? I'm sorry, none of you sound like that. 
It's also worth pointing out, and this is part of the scholarly line of thinking, that it was the men in the ancient context who were the ones who were educated. Women weren't even sent to Torah school. So the men knew a lot of the background. They knew a lot of the context. They could connect the references. And the women, simply by virtue of not having spent as long studying, couldn't do it as much. This isn't to say that no women could, but as a general statement, this is what the society looked like. And so as a result, some of the women would be confused when they were talking about different things in the Bible or making references, and rightly so. But instead of interrupting what was going on in the service, Paul is saying that these women should be patient and get those lessons later in a more private context where they won't be throwing off the plan for the rest of the service. And I am partial to this line of thinking. As we've said before, reading this letter is like listening to only one side of a telephone conversation. So we can't be totally certain of what the context was for Paul's comments. But I have found this line of reasoning compelling and in line with the merciful and inviting and holy God found elsewhere in Scripture. In case you can't tell, my throat's not great today, so I'm going to be having some more water than usual. That, however, brings us to the main thrust of our chapter and is the second point of our focus for today, order in the gathering. And this is really what Paul's comments about women being silent are about, the maintaining of order. Someone speaking up in church isn't a problem because of their gender. Like, it wouldn't be fine if men were doing it either, except when I called for it, Troy, you're good. But we can see Paul's focus on order all through this chapter. He talks about the importance of activity that benefits the whole gathering. He talks about limiting how many expressions there are. He talks about having the expressions happen one at a time. And he reminds them that the spiritual gifts are not ecstatic, spontaneous, uncontrolled gifts, but that they express themselves with the discretion of the speaker. And this is a super important topic. We spend a lot of energy here making sure that there is order to the service. Why? Because we believe, not only because the Bible says so, but also because it has been our experience, that an orderly worship service fosters a better encounter with the divine. Do you see this? This is called an order of service. We've got about a dozen of these floating around for today's service. I get one. Justine gets one. Everybody working the sound booth has one, including the camera. The worship team has their own copy. I don't know if you've noticed, and I mean, I hope you have, but one of the things that we've been working on for the last while is having really crisp transitions between the service elements. Switching from one of the worship team to the speaker or to a video or to the announcements or whatever, we've been working on trying to do those transitions. For one thing, it looks way better online if you're watching and the stage isn't empty and silent for five or 10 seconds. But the main thing is that even for those of us here in the sanctuary, this entire service is about focusing our attention on God. The less opportunity that there is for distraction, the fewer times that you will stop to think about, mm, what's for lunch, and get pulled out of the moment. It's why our worship teams practice. 
because a wrong note can pull you from heaven's gates back into your pew frighteningly fast. It's why our speakers agonize over the sermons, because we believe that order in the service means a better chance for you to connect with God. And so the third thing that I'd like to bring to your attention today is the example that Paul uses and what it can teach us more broadly. Paul's consistent example throughout this chapter is the focus on tongues against the focus on prophecy. And it's important to couch this discussion in the specific context of the gathering of the church. Paul is by no means forbidding tongues. In fact, he says that he speaks in tongues more than the Corinthians in verse 18. So by no means is Paul saying that tongues is bad or that it shouldn't happen. And I need to preface with that because Paul also spends a lot of time emphasizing how much better prophecy is. And we humans have a bad habit of jumping to extremes. So try to hold that tension. And I guess we should also quickly cover what these gifts are. The gift of prophecy isn't about telling the future. It's actually about speaking the words of God. Think about the people in the Bible who are referred to as prophets. Moses is a prophet, and Moses does make some prophecies in the sense of this thing will happen in the future, but mostly, Moses does a whole lot of relaying the words of God to the people, right? Or think about the books of the Old Testament. Traditionally, the Hebrew Bible has been divided in three sections, the law, the writings, which we would usually refer to as the books of poetry, and the prophets. And we often divide those into the major prophets and the minor prophets. Name a prophet. Pick one. Jeremiah. I heard Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a great example. Jeremiah is a book, it's 52 chapters long. And almost all of that book is Jeremiah begging the people to turn back to God and warning them about what will happen if they don't. Isaiah is the biggest book of the prophets. It's 66 chapters, and Isaiah contains some of the most beautiful prophecies concerning the Messiah. It does contain much of these predictions is the wrong word, right? Because when it's God, it's not a prediction. God isn't guessing. But Isaiah contains, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Awesome. Isaiah is also where we get the prophecy of the virgin birth. But most of Isaiah? Most of Isaiah is God going, if you don't, turn, if you don't stop turning away from me, it's going to go really badly for you. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, all the others, they do contain warnings or promises about what God will do in the future, what we would consider prophecies in that sense, but mostly they're messages from God to the people of God. Think about the Mount of Transfiguration story, right? Jesus meets with two figures on the mountain. Can anyone remember who they are? Come on, I'm having fun calling you out today. Moses and Elijah, yes. Moses is, represents the law, right? It's, in fact, it's often talked about Moses and the prophets as the Old Testament. Moses is the law, and Elijah represents the prophets in this context. 
So Elijah is a big deal, not only because he's the one who shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's more like he shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration because he's a big deal. Okay, so like don't, don't get it backwards. But can you think of a single prophecy that Elijah gave in, in the sense of predictions, like especially in the context of Messiah, because that's where we tend to think about it. Elijah didn't do that. Elijah is famous for speaking God's words to a people, and especially to a king, who had turned their backs on God. And that fundamentally is what prophecy is. It's speaking the words of God. Which means that this, right now, preaching, is prophecy. I wrestle and I agonize over our sermons because I firmly believe that you do not need to hear from me. You don't need to know what I think. You need to know what God thinks. You need to hear from Him. And I believe that this message is what God has to say to you today. This is prophecy, and it is a deeply public and communal act. Tongues on the other hand, is a private act. Tongues is, in some mysterious way, your spirit praying and communing with God, according to verse 14 and others of this chapter. I pray in tongues, and I have no idea what I'm saying when I do. But I do know that I'm different after. I am more connected with God. I am a better husband and father and pastor and friend when I have been connecting with God in that way, among others. It's important and it's good, but because I don't know what's really going on, it's very easy for my mind to get distracted. As Paul says in this chapter, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I usually do it with worship music on so that my mind can be on that while my spirit prays. So we can see why Paul would say that this isn't really an appropriate thing to be doing in church, at least in the sense of getting up in front of the congregation and babbling away. Sometimes, though, God gives an interpretation to the tongues. So far as I can tell, I haven't been given get that gift, but I've seen it. I've seen it happen. And if it's the case that there's an interpretation, then Paul says it is appropriate in church and just as appropriate as prophecy. And the reason he gives is that when there is an interpretation, then you are edifying the body of the believers around you. This is the core of Paul's message in this chapter. Don't do stuff in church that gets in the way of people connecting with God. And do things that do help people connect with God. He puts this wonderfully in his letter to the Philippians. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And this is also where we can see how last week's focus on chapter 13 and love fits in with this week. Paul starts this chapter with these words, having just finished the love chapter. Follow the way of love. We're reminded, and the whole thing is couched together. The spiritual gifts and the gifts of love, they, they all go together. Because even as he starts the 
chapter on love, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And I point out that he doesn't mean have love in the sense of having a spouse. He means have love in the sense of do I love the people that I'm trying to serve. All of the spiritual gifts, everything that we do and around the church service, it all has to be done out of love for God and for one another. Not out of tradition, not out of propriety, not out of pride or for self-aggrandizement, but out of love. It is our intention, it is our hope, it is our prayer. May you operate this week in God's power through God's love. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is our prayer that your love through us going out into the people around us would be the animating force of our church community. Lord, you said in your word that they would know us by how we love one another, that that would be the mark of the Christians in the world, how we love one another. We pray, God, that this would be how we are seen. But Lord, we also pray for the gifts of the Spirit. We thank you for the gifts of the Spirit, God, because we believe that you are here and you are active, that your Holy Spirit is present in this place that it indwells each believer, and that you are a God who gives gifts. So we ask, Lord, for your gifts. We receive your gifts. And we pray that we would recognize and exercise those gifts in the service of your church, of your people, of your purposes. We pray all this in your name. Amen.